0: Well, let's turn to John chapter 13, where Jesus is in the upper room. John chapter 13. John devotes an astonishing five chapters to Jesus' final night. Chapters 13 through 17. Jesus is on the verge of receiving all authority over all nations, Yet the night begins with Jesus assuming the role of a Gentile slave and washing the disciples' feet. If Jesus is the Messiah, why does he assume the role of a servant? And As we discovered over the last two weeks, for Jesus, service is a prerequisite for exaltation. So, if we're going to be true citizens of Jesus' kingdom, then we need to make appropriate application of this passage to our own lives. So with that in mind, let's take up our reading with verse 12. This is the aftermath of the event. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, Jesus' ministry has drawn to a close. but The disciples clearly have much to learn. And Jesus' question in verse 12 exposes their ignorance. Do you understand what I have done to you? Well, earlier in verse 7, Jesus had already said, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Four days earlier, when Jesus humbly rode a donkey up the Jerusalem's gate, John told us his disciples did not understand these things at first. The disciples still don't even understand the coming crucifixion. Jesus had revealed three times that he was going to die and resurrect, but Luke told us emphatically and repeatedly they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Luke's Gospel also tells us they were still arguing among themselves over those positions of honor. That is right and left hands, an argument they kept up right into the upper room. Clearly, the disciples still need to undergo a complete reorientation of their thinking. And that's why Luke's gospel, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but let the greatest among you become as one who serves or one who deacons. Well, thankfully, Jesus' followers eventually get it all worked out. If ever there was a Jew who outwardly deserved a position at Jesus' right or left hand, it was a man named Paul. He was talented. He was brilliant. He was a devoted student of Scripture. But when he was tamed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, he began referring to himself as a servant, as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apollos also was in a talented order, a persuasive preacher who could have rivaled the legendary Cicero. But Paul asked the Corinthians, well, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We are servants. Paul wrote to the Galatians, I am a servant of Christ. He wrote to the Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To the Colossians, Paul wrote of Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Antichicus, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Paul instructed Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. James likewise describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter instructs his readers to live as servants of God. He likewise describes himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He puts servant before apostleship, actually. And Jude describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And finally, John in Revelation describes himself as his servant, John. In fact, he also goes on to describe all Christians as servants and brothers. Now friends, this really is indeed a strange new vocabulary of the kingdom for those who are seeking positions of honor. We're so accustomed to this language that we really forget how ridiculous this all must have sounded. How ridiculous this whole notion of service must have sounded to these apostles who are seeking those positions at the right and left hands of Jesus Christ. So what happened in that upper room? And especially what happened afterward when the foot-washing servant became the suffering servant? Brought about a complete reorientation of the disciples' thinking on this matter. Now, in verse thirteen, Jesus clarifies that the disciples were not entirely wrong. He says, "You call me teacher and Lord, for so I am." All right, so he's the servant, but he also says, "You call me teacher and Lord, and that's who I am." They did, in fact, correctly identify Him as the teacher. The term teacher is equivalent to rabbi was a term of high respect for a Jewish teacher. The term Lord was likewise a respect, a term of respect that marked Jesus out from His followers. as worthy of being followed. Unless we think that Jesus was merely a servant, He acknowledges that He is indeed worthy of other titles. And we ought to ascribe these titles to Him. He is worthy of being called Lord And teacher. But if so, what does that mean? Well, if you address him as teacher, that means you need to follow his example. What does the teacher do? Well, that's verse 14. If I then, your Lord, that's who he is, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. That you also should do just as I have done to you. I don't think I have to tell you that one way that human pride manifests itself is through societal rankings. We have our caste systems, our systems of royalty and nobility, even hierarchies in the church. Society has divided into the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the vassal lord and his serfs, the master and his slaves. But understand, Jesus is not some sort of Marxist who calls for the obliteration of all ranks in society. We've been talking about that in James also. The Marxist theologian actually gets it wrong. Clearly, Jesus acknowledges his own rank as Lord and Teacher. Nevertheless, Jesus demonstrates that as Lord and Teacher, this position of higher rank, he is willing to serve others. And if that's the case then we have to follow his example. That's the point that he's making, and it's a very important distinction. There is a kind of Marxist Christianity that sees Jesus as this kind of revolutionary who just came to just obliterate all distinctions between people and society, just do away with them all. But that actually is contrary to the New Testament. Jesus never relinquished his authority. Further, Jesus will soon grant to his apostles great authority in the church. Likewise, the apostles will go out and establish leadership in the churches and give qualifications for the same. But what both Jesus and the apostles emphasize is service. In fact, the term deacon itself, while it refers to a position of leadership in the church, is literally the word servant. That's the term. But likewise, the apostles call themselves deacons, servants. And they appointed elders to serve in the church. We are all deacons. We're all required to serve. In Luke's account of the upper room, Jesus twice calls himself a deacon. I am among you as a deacon, as a servant. So this is really, really crucial, that even though you have leadership in a church, you have to think in terms of Jesus modeling that through service. Several years ago, we gave a tremendous amount of attention to our church's polity. Perhaps you remember working through that. And that's when we adopted elder plurality. And at that time, we also re-examined the role of deacons. And if you recall, Lee Searad was our deacon chair for several years. And he and I had numerous, numerous conversations just really trying to come to terms with what the New Testament actually teaches about the local church. and Poor Lee had to move to California for a well-deserved break from us all, because he really put a lot into it here. No, he actually had a job out there. But we we, we really miss Lee, don't we? Lee was just so wonderful. But we agreed that elders had a primary responsibility for the spiritual oversight of the church, and deacons had a primary responsibility for the physical maintenance of the church, and both offices were designed to serve the entire body. And then Lee very succinctly summarized our philosophy. He said, elders serve the church by leading, and deacons lead the church by serving. Elders serve the church by leading, and deacons lead the church by serving. I thought, man, I wish I would have thought, to put it so succinctly. And after that, we actually came up with a whole flow chart. And we just basically identified several different areas of service responsibilities for all of our leaders. And we wrote into the document... Uh, you know, various areas where we serve one another and serve the whole congregation. And every year we just distribute that document to all of our elders and deacons. Elders and deacons all have areas of service. And why do we take that approach? Well, the answer is because of Jesus' example right here in the upper room. Verse 15, for I have given you an example. I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. So figure out how to serve each other, regardless of your position. Now, if any of us are really tempted to develop an inflated view of our roles, well, then just read the next verse. Verse 16, "...truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Is there an elder, or a deacon, or any Christian anywhere who is more important than Jesus?" Of course, in our heads we always say no, but if that's true, then what should our posture be if Jesus' posture is that of a servant washing disciples' feet? In the church, there really is no place for posturing, for pride of position, for an exalted view of oneself, for an inflated view of one's importance. There is no place for partiality. That's what James just told us on Wednesday night. It actually has no business whatsoever in the church. But as we look back to the history of the church, have there been failures? And can we learn from them? Well, living in the Vatican City today is a high priest recognized by millions of people all over the globe as the head of the church. Upon his ascension to the Roman Catholic papacy, he adopted the name Pope Francis I in honor of the great medieval monk St. Francis of Assisi. He is recognized as the 266th pope or papa or father. He is the father of the church despite the fact that Jesus commanded us call no man father on earth. And he claims, like all popes, to be the very vicar of Christ, the only true head of a church on earth and the possessor of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he sits at the pinnacle of a massive hierarchy of priests through whom you must approach Jesus Christ if you are to be saved. Emblazoned throughout the Vatican Museum, museum are the insignia of two crossed keys, one of silver, one of gold, bound together with a red cord, and they signify the Pope's power to open and close the kingdom to anyone. And above the keys is a triple crown. It symbolizes the Pope's triple power. Listen to this as Father of Kings governor of the world, and vicar of Christ. The Vatican Sistine Chapel, where popes are chosen by the College of Cardinals, is a painting by the Italian Renaissance painter Pietro Peraguino. It's called The Delivery of the Keys. And at the focal point of that painting, Jesus delivers gold and silver keys to a kneeling Peter. With his right hand, Peter receives the keys and his left hand covers his heart. In the background stands Solomon's temple. The papacy is a continuation of the Old Testament priesthood. And Peregrino's painting achieves something unique among his contemporaries when he renders the horizon beyond the temple. It stretches on indefinitely. And what that communicates is That what Christ gave to Peter in giving him the keys stretches on indefinitely. All the popes received the same authority that Peter received. The Roman Catholic Church built a whole ecclesiastical hierarchy centered on the Father, many of whom were very worldly, debauched, immoral men, power-hungry men who viewed themselves as governors of the world. In fact, in 1308, Pope Boniface VIII issued a very famous bull called Unum Sanctum. It has never been rescinded. And it reads, I quote, Now therefore we declare, say, and pronounce that for every human creature it is necessary for salvation to be subject to the authority of the Roman Pope. Well, that sounds like the Pope never got the message. If Jesus washed the disciples' feet, we should serve one another. But friends, it would be very easy to pick on the Catholics all day long, but let's actually bring it closer to home, shall we? I grew up in a fundamentalist context, which got a lot of things right. Doctrinally, the fundamentalists did not budge an inch, from numerous cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, and I appreciate a great deal of what I learned in fundamentalism. Nevertheless, like any movement, there were problems. I don't think I have to tell you there was a great deal of pride in the movement. Just listen to how preachers introduced each other when they swapped pulpits. Some of those introductions were such a noxious, panegyric of praise that you could just hardly stomach the sermon that followed. Listen to how some of them talked about their call to the ministry. you got the distinct sense that the preacher's vocation was superior to everyone else. I mean, there's like the call to the pastorate, and then there's all the rest of you. Some of those men collected honorary doctorates and board memberships and jetted around the country for speaking engagements, all the while keeping an eye out for larger and larger ministries truly worthy of them. The 20th century witnessed a great deal of empire building among pastors, and it's one of the reasons I believe that Baptists lost elder plurality in the 20th century. Some 20th century pastors acted like bishops building their ministry empires. They saw the local church as a platform for ever-broader ministries. The advent of radio, television, and finally the Internet, coupled with the revolution in travel in the 20th century, just gave many men a lust for travel and for speaking and for... International recognition, ultimately. And sadly, in many cases, the local congregation was simply neglected. It was a stepping stone to something greater. J. Frank Norris, a very famous fundamentalist, began pastoring First Baptist Church in Fort Worth in 1909. He pastored it until his death in 1952. But in 1935, he also accepted the pastorate of Temple Baptist Church in Detroit. Yes, he simultaneously pastored churches in Texas and Michigan. A total of 26,000 people flying back and forth between them. Well, really? Are you so important that no one locally can carry on the work? The 20th century saw the rise of the pastor's CEO with large staffs and churches run like big business. A successful pastor served on five boards. He traveled the country He started several new ministries and was an in-demand conference speaker, and the humble indigenous shepherd often disappeared in churches. And unfortunately, at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, we have seen an alarming and shocking rise of pastoral infidelity, of embezzlement, of scandal. Many churches came to view their pastor as a kind of pastor pope or God's untouchable servant. He was accountable to no one, and when he resigned, the ministry just sort of collapsed around him. So friends, the church doesn't need kings and popes and a whole hierarchy of leaders. Friends, the church has one king. One king, one chief shepherd, Peter says. One senior pastor, and it's not me. One chief shepherd. And he stooped over and washed the disciples' feet. Now, I could paint a really bleak picture. Thankfully, we have men that have been really, really good examples. I hope it's okay to single out one of our members because he is not here to protest. His wife is here. When Steve Pettit first came to BGU as president, he was offered a massive presidential office fit for a king. Anyone ever see that office? I know Terry saw that office. <laughs> It was furnished with expensive tables, desks, lavish couches and ornamental chairs. Intricately designed wood paneling with beautiful scroll work just lined the walls. The ceiling was paneled and trestled with expensive stained woods. On its walls were gigantic, expensive paintings. remember right after he came to Bob Jones, several of us had a meeting with him in that office, and you could tell that he was just visibly embarrassed. Like, I don't know what to do with this. Well, next door to that presidential office was a much smaller office, a little corner office for the president's personal assistant. Well, Steve kicked the assistant out and moved into that little office. Just kind of shook up the whole administration building, because not everybody has to move around, Right. And he just immediately got down to the business of serving faculty, staff, and students. That, that, that really made an impression on us. This man was here to serve. Now, if you have a nice office, I'm actually not jealous. Alright. And nor am I condemning wealth. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights. The Bible does not condemn wealth. It tells the wealthy to serve. It does not condemn wealth. What Jesus is ultimately after is not the size of our offices, but our attitudes of service to the King. That's what matters. Our posture needs to be one of humility. We are humbly serving the king. None of ours are necessary. And if you really understand all this, well, here's Jesus' verdict. Verse 17, if you know these things, if you know it in practice, in your head, I mean, if you know it in your head, theologically, blessed are you if you do them. Put it all into practice. Verse 17 is, in fact, a call Action. D.A. Carson writes, There is a form of religious piety that utters a hearty Amen to the most stringent demands of discipleship, but which rarely does anything about them. Well, do the disciples heed this call to action? Do they finally figure out that Jesus is interested in their service, not their request for positions of honor in the kingdom? They get it all figured out. Well, look back at verse 7. When Jesus was about to wash Peter's feet, he resisted. Jesus responded, What I am doing you do not understand now, Peter. But afterward you will understand. The answer is yes. They did come to understand. I already suggested that they adopt this whole strange new vocabulary of the kingdom. We are all servants and bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to really confirm that Peter got it figured out, let's actually turn to his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the same Peter who resisted Jesus' attempt to wash his feet, and now he will explain to us how to serve if you think about it, apart from Jesus, who better could we learn from than Peter? The Lord rebuked him and then appointed him as the most prominent apostle in the early church. Jesus would not have done so had Peter never learned his lesson. So here's what Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, and then notice this, verse 9, show hospitality. That's service. Show hospitality to one another. How? Without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever serves as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I'm sorry, that's verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, would you notice here how Peter makes the identical connection Jesus does between love and service? John said Jesus, chapter 13, loved disciples to the end. Therefore, he washed their feet. Well, notice how the earnest love of verse 8 manifests itself in the hospitality of verse 9. Same idea. Love followed by service. Peter calls for loving, sincere hospitality without grumbling. Now, can you imagine Jesus actually washing the disciples' feet all the while he sort of muttered under his breath, like, I can't believe I have to do this. Well, friends, there is a kind of hospitality that can come to characterize churches. I'm always having to help this person. Why am I the only one who seems to make meals for the sick around here? I can't believe I'm having to counsel this person again. Am I the only one that cleans up after himself or herself around here? All right, I understand all that. and Sometimes you look around and it feels like, man, I'm doing a lot, and someone is not doing so much. All right. Can't go there, Peter says. All right. Hospitality is inconvenient. And it can, in fact, easily foster grumbling. That's why Peter warns against it. Christian love just transforms hospitality into Christ-like service. Notice also in verse 10 that Peter implies that we all have some giftedness. Each has received a gift. But don't stop there. Giftedness entails obligation. So use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So clearly, in Peter's mind, service is not optional. It is a response to God's varied grace. And by varied grace, he means that God graciously equips the church with various gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. He gives a variety of gifts to people. All gifts are from God, but they are not all the same. So whatever yours is, use it to serve someone else. Now, Peter here does not categorize all the different gifts you might find in the church. Paul does that elsewhere. But in verse 11, he sees two essential categories, speaking and serving. Speaking is a service gift, and so are all the others. But again, his broader point is that everyone, everyone has a gift to serve the church. And that means that if you're not using your gift, the whole church really is not functioning the way that it should. So to summarize, here is what Peter learned from the example of Jesus. Number one, love manifests itself in service. Number two, all believers are gifted by God's grace to serve. And number three, giftedness produces obligation. And what's the outcome of people using their gift to serve the church? Well, look at the second half of verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. If God is glorified through Jesus Christ when you use your gift of service... And that's what he's saying. Does your neglect of your giftedness imply that you are not glorifying God through Jesus Christ? Now, I wanted to turn also to 1 Corinthians 12, but I'm just going to skip over that for now for sake of time. But let me just remind you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're welcome to go read that passage this afternoon. Paul, in that passage, will use this very organic metaphor of the body emphasize service in the church. Would you just think about our bodies? Think about the massive amounts of money that we're willing to spend on doctors and hospitals and nutrition health experts to keep our bodies functioning. We do that because our bodies are important. And think about how difficult it would be to suddenly cope without a part of your body functioning properly. The loss of sight or hearing or the amputation of a foot or hand or even a little finger or toe. We really value our bodies. And so Paul deliberately chooses the body as his metaphor for what's supposed to be happening in the church. Paul's point is that when you're not serving the whole body, it's actually like just losing a body part. I actually sort of felt that way when Lee left. I'm like, man, we just lost a massive body part. And then then Barry stepped up and, wow, Barry's awesome. All right. (laughs) But imagine also Paul says that we all had the the, the same the, the same body part. all right imagine everyone was an eyeball you know here 's this big eyeball just kind of rolling down the street and just wave and say hi to John over there well he can 't respond, and uh, he can 't hear you anyway uh, it's, it, The image is absurd. we have this variety of gifts, and Paul says, "Bring all of your gifts together and use them." To serve the church. All right? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I went really quickly over that because I want to conclude by going to Galatians chapter 6. Let's actually turn to Galatians chapter 6 this morning. And I think this passage will really help us as we prepare our hearts for communion. I just want to refer to one more way that we can all serve the church. In Galatians chapter 6, and verse 2, Paul says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, bearing someone else's burden, isn't that the job of a servant? When royalty traveled, they didn't carry their own luggage. Their servants bore the weight. But Paul says we're to do this for one another. But I want to think very specifically about how we pray for each other, how we bear the burdens of each other when it comes to prayer. Churches tend to spend a lot of time praying for each other's physical needs. And there is certainly nothing wrong with this, because you see it by way of example in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with this. But I wonder whether we're as good at praying for each other's spiritual needs. I think you know that prayer request time in churches can turn into gossip sessions about what happens in the church or other churches for that matter. We can spend ten minutes giving extremely detailed prayer requests, as if it's critical that we know every single little detail and then spend about maybe thirty seconds actually praying for those same requests. So spend 10 minutes talking to everybody else about it and give God 30 seconds maybe. Or we can spend enormous times amount of time talking about my second cousin's plumber's grandson's niece who was diagnosed with cancer. And you're just trying to you know follow the connection. who is this again? And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about those situations. Don't anyone misunderstand? I really care about those situations. But I sometimes wonder if all those prayer requests for somebody in Seattle really distract us from thinking about each other's spiritual needs. And then there is the unspoken request. And frankly, I'm never quite sure what to do with those. You might be asking me to pray for a new pastor. How would I know? (laughs) Honestly, how, how can I pray for your burden if I don't know what it is? I, I, I want to pray for you, but I don't, I don't know what your burden is. And if, if you're uncomfortable telling me, that is totally okay. But there is a person you're supposed to give that request to. His name is the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans 8 and verse 26 says, The Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So what do you do with that? But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, having said all that, it's true that Paul in Galatians 6 and verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. But sometimes I think that we think of our burdens as sort of unspoken because we're unwilling to be honest with each other about our real problems. Would you keep verse 2 in the context of verse 1? Here's what Paul says. In the context of verse 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. The context actually does not concern our physical needs. It concerns our spiritual needs, our temptations. That's actually what Paul was talking about when he tells us to serve one another by carrying each other's burdens. The context concerns our spiritual warfare with sin. And James also says something very similar. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's talking about spiritual healing. So when's the last time that you actually confessed your sin to one another? Maybe another woman of the church if you're a woman, another man of the church if you're a man. And that almost strikes us as inappropriate. But actually, that's what New Testament prayers tend to sound like. And we say that we are really good Protestants who believe in the priesthood of all believers. But part of what that means is that I don't have to go to a local priest. I can turn to the brother or the sister in the pew next to me and say, Hey, you're a priest. Would you pray for me? Would you bear my burden?" So, might it be that we need to really serve one another more effectively by being honest with each other about our shortcomings and really looking to each other to help each other with our spiritual battles? So, as we go to prayer today, can I encourage us, as we prepare our hearts for communion, to do as the Apostle Paul instructs us to examine ourselves and to confess our sin? But then just observe the people around you. And might you just also include two or three people around you praying for them, praying for their needs. And then if you come to this table and you're very frustrated because you say, you know, every time I come to this table, I feel like I'm confessing the same thing over and over again to God and I'm getting it right and starting over for a new month. And then by the middle of the month, you've just fallen flat in your face again. You're like, how am I ever going to stop this? You know what you might need to do? Is, is quit carrying that burden around privately and tell someone else in the church. Say, hey, this month, would you pray for me? Every time I come to this table, I keep on struggling with this thing. I, I, you know, I don't want to get to November and do it all over again. So would you pray for me this month and really bear this burden with me? Because I want to get to November and I want to take communion again. And October is a five week, five Sunday month. So it's another five weeks. All right. Maybe, maybe that would be a good idea for some of you, or perhaps all of us. Can we do that today? As we go to prayer, can we just prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning?